Does the merger between Bayer and Monsanto have implications for the economic and political landscape beyond food and agriculture? What is the CRISPR technique Monsanto was invested in, and why is it of concern to protesters in cities around the world? Should consumers be satisfied with assurances about the safety of glyphosate, GMOs, and agrochemical agriculture? Are there alternatives to intense industrial agriculture built on intellectual properties, rights, and chemical inputs? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we return to the ongoing concerns around genetic engineering and industrial agriculture. We'll hear a recent interview with author and attorney Ellen Brown. We'll hear from writer Nick Myers about the May 19th March Against Monsanto. We'll hear from Dr. Stephen France about the specific dangers associated with GMOs and agrochemicals like glyphosate. And we'll hear an exclusive interview with Vandana Shiva about the bigger picture this industrial model of agriculture masks. On this week's program, the Bayer-Monsanto merger, empowering a life-destroying cartel. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 18th, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Double standards is an understatement. Flashback to early March 2018, when the Skripal affair broke out in the UK, the Kremlin was accused, without evidence, of poisoning double agent Peter Skripal and his daughter Yulia with the deadly Novichok nerve gas. Pressured by London and Washington, more than 20 Western countries ordered the expulsion of more than 100 Russian diplomats. In the meantime, the Skripals have fully recovered. Nobody was killed. In contrast, following the Gaza massacre, not a single Israeli diplomat has been expelled from the member states of the European Union. That comes from the article, Western Governments Complicit in Crimes Against Humanity. Israel has the right to defend itself, says Trump, by Professor Michel Chosodovsky, posted May 16th. There are no calls for embargoes on sales of arms, no demands for war crimes investigations, no threats of trade sanctions, and no plans, of course, for the kind of humanitarian intervention Western governments have keenly promoted in other parts of the Middle East where civilians are under threat. For seven decades, the West has pampered Israel at every turn. The lack of any meaningful punishment for violating Palestinian rights led directly to Monday's massacre. And the failure to inflict a price on Israel for this massacre, in fact, the reverse, visible rewards with a relocated U.S. embassy and the chance to host the Eurovision Song Contest, will lead to the next massacre and the one after. That comes from the article, West's Failure to Act Will Be Cause of the Next Gaza Massacre, by Jonathan Cook, posted May 16th. 
It is notable that the second article of the Panmunjom Declaration commits the two Koreas to joint efforts to alleviate the acute military tension and practically eliminate the danger of war on the Korean Peninsula, and the third article to actively cooperate to establish a permanent and solid peace regime on the Korean Peninsula. After Moon and Kim agreed to cooperate on declaring an end to the war, turning the armistice into a peace treaty, and establishing a permanent and solid peace regime, they confirmed the common goal of realizing through complete denuclearization a nuclear-free Korean peninsula in the last clause of the third article. Given that the declaration consists of three articles, its structure makes it clear that the two leaders see Korea's denuclearization as part of a peace regime. It remains to be seen, time will tell, as Trump said, whether a planned Kim-Trump summit in June, now scheduled to take place in Singapore, will lead to a concrete agreement on Korea's denuclearization and peace. Kim has at least shown some consistency. He has consistently moved towards the goal of economic development, even while developing nuclear capabilities, and has consistently reciprocated with nuclear tests and threats when his proposals for talks have been dismissed or met with maximum pressure. That comes from the article, Kim Jong-un's move from nuclearization to denuclearization, changes and continuities in North Korea and the future of Northeast Asia by Professor Jae jong Sun, posted May 16th, originally appearing in the Asia-Pacific Journal, Japan Focus. Immediately after Trump's April 3rd, time to get out of Syria and bring our troops home statement, an alleged gas attack occurred on April 7th that was allegedly ordered by Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. That attack was followed by Netanyahu's April 30th dog and pony show as a warm-up for Trump's much-anticipated announcement withdrawing from the nuclear accord with Iran, JCPOA, on May 8th. By May 9th, Netanyahu was in Moscow viewing the Russian Victory Day parade alongside Russian President Vladimir Putin. We can only speculate on the details of the Putin-Netanyahu conversation, but it is an unlikely coincidence that Russia's previous plan to provide its sophisticated S-300 surface-to-air missile system to Syria has been put on the back burner, and it appears the Russians took no active role to counter the Israeli offensive. As reported in Haaretz, Netanyahu used the old cliché with Putin that Israeli has the right to defend itself in the face of Iranian aggression, and as Putin should be aware, that is smokescreen lingo, for Israel will pursue its policy of death and destruction throughout the Middle East with no apologies to anyone and international law be damned. That comes from the article, Trump-Israel Collusion on Syria, by Renee Parsons, posted May 16th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The merger between Bayer and Monsanto is expected to create a new company which will be responsible for a quarter of the seeds and pesticides on the world market, putting unprecedented power over the world's food system in the hands of one multinational corporation. To help examine some of the larger implications of the Bayer-Monsanto deal, we're joined by Ellen Brown. Ellen Brown's an attorney, chairman of the Public Banking Institute, and author of 12 books, including Web of Debt, 
and the public bank solution. Her article, The Bear-Monsanto Merger is Bad News for the Planet, originally appeared at truthdig.com. Thanks for joining us, Ellen, and welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks, Michael. Now, uh, it, it's interesting that uh, you you speak about this merger in the context of if, if it being uh, a cartel. We're talking about... Uh, an entity here that's has nothing to do with consumer demand. It's actually about control. Uh, I was wondering if you could maybe talk about some of that uh, that dimension to this situation, the way in which this um, this merger is thoroughly undermining not only consumer choice but the the way that we provide food for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, the. We used to have antitrust laws with teeth, but but they pretty much I mean they're still there, but they're they're pretty much disappeared. And what there was when I first wrote that article, there was still hope that uh, Trump might veto this merger as a violation of the antitrust laws. But all he did was require you know certain portions of the business to be sold off to other giant firms in the same business. So you still have, it may not be a monopoly, but it's an oligopoly of a few giant firms that are that are controlling the field. And they have reduced the number of small seed businesses hugely. So, so farmers complain that they really can't get non-GMO seeds anymore, or it's very difficult to get non-GMO seeds. There's, it is rumored... Uh, you know, I can't exactly prove this, but it's definitely rumored that Monsanto has long been trying to take over the cannabis business, but with um, GMO cannabis seeds. And in fact, it's rumored, or I mean, there's fairly good evidence that uh, the pharmaceutical industry has been a major player in keeping cannabis off the market for a hundred years. And they only, and and then they, or I won't name names, but anyway, there's the, the whole push for cannabis legalization in California, for example, was a bit suspicious. It came on suddenly, and it, it's you can make a case that these big companies were just waiting until they were in a position to corner the market before they would allow its legalization, and now they want it to be legalized. I mean, cannabis is a huge competitor to the pharmaceutical industry, but if they can patent it, which they can patent it if they alter the alter the structure in some way, which means it's no longer the natural plant that that actually has all the health benefits that we really want. But anyway, if they if they can um, alter the structure, they can patent it, and then they can do like they've done with corn and soy, which is basically take over the whole market. So so you almost can't find non-GMO corn or non-GMO soy seeds. If you're a farmer, it's very difficult to, to get them, apparently. Now, Bayer is a, uh, a descendant or, or one of the, the components of uh, a huge uh, firm called IG Farben. From, and, yeah, and you write about this. It was a known cartel. It was called a cartel. It was definitely a cartel. Yeah. And, of course, IG Farben was such a huge... Um, uh, well, cartel, as you you put it, and uh, which you say arose out of the oil industry, which which is an interesting uh, dimension to it. We're talking about something that's uh, rather essential to modern uh, life as we know it today, and it's you know we 
so we, we have this connection with what we think of as agriculture and oil uh, coming together. Right. So IG Farben, Bayer was part of IG Farben, and um, the, that whole industry came out, well, the pharmaceutical industry actually came out of the oil industry, and chemotherapeutic drugs came out of those uh, weaponized chemicals that were used during during World War II, and that was that was IG Farben, and IG Farben was broken up at the Nuremberg trials for their participation in those very toxic chemicals, uh, and it was broken up into three companies, one of which was Bayer. Interestingly, at that time, Bayer merged with Monsanto to uh, to save its bad reputation as part of IG Farben. And now Monsanto is merging with Bayer to save its representation. I guess Monsanto was called several years ago. It was branded the most hated uh, corporation in the world. Or <laughs> anyway, it's uh, you know it has a very bad reputation. So so they partnered before. They made Agent Orange together. Uh, that's that's their business is toxic chemicals, which are have been used in, they're, they're the same toxic chemicals that are used in chemotherapy. And uh, the drug industry itself, the pharmaceuticals are oil-based, and that goes back, well, the, the whole Rockefeller business was oil and banking, and banking was with, where they got their money to fund all this. So it's uh, all <laughs> it's very dark and deep. And, it, and and of course, as you state in that article, that uh, that uh, the 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 uh, agreement between Ro- the Rockefellers and IG Farben ended up causing all of the other uh, firms to capitulate to this uh, this new uh, th- this growing arkel of the hundreds of American companies that got involved after that. I'm wondering if. It's you'd make an equation or at least a comparison between the the IG Farben and Rockefeller alignments with this Monsanto Bear um, merger in in terms of the the level of clout that it ends up having uh, economically and ultimately politically. Right, that's the whole business model we're seeing today, where you have giant corporations merging with each other. Um, dominating the field, uh, squeezing out all the small players. I mean, my particular specialty is public banking and local banking, and the local banks are getting squeezed out. The local It's the local banks that fund the local businesses, so the local businesses are, can't compete. So you have these giant supranational corporations that really want to break free of government regulation altogether. That's pretty much what the Trans-Pacific Partnership was all about, these um, these international agreements that would that give them the upper hand in, in litigation. Anyway, that that is what's happening today. And so the big issue for us is how to get that power back, how to break them up, how to reassert the power of government and the power, I mean, which is us, you know, our government. Right now the government itself has a very bad name because it's been corrupted and um, taken over by big business. How are politicians captured by these uh, economic uh, giants? Right. It's lobbying, and it's the revolving door, and it's huge contributions to 
to politicians. They need that money for the, in order to get reelected. If they don't have corporate money, I mean, very few. It's certainly at the national level, it's very rare for a politician who does not take corporate money to get elected. So. Well, I know that uh, in the case of Trump, as, as I've seen statistics that like over half of his supporters are opposed to the Bear Monsanto merger, and I mean that's I think something that you were, uh, you know, had some hopes about when you wrote your article. So, you know, is it you know, simply a matter of of I mean putting putting up the pressure to to somehow be a, a rival lobby to these politicians, uh, to these uh, to the uh, yeah, well, my sense is that we have all these groups petitioning for different things. I mean, there are definitely groups that, that organic consumer groups, that type of thing, and then we're the public banking group, and it, you have various small groups that really don't have much hope of breaking through. What we really need to do somehow is get together. I'm not exactly sure how, but we the people definitely have the numbers. We could outvote the other side. We could outvote the money side. They've got the money and we've got the numbers. But the problem is we're not consolidated. We're uh, All these interests are uh, well-meaning, though they are, and they're all all worthy of success, but they're, they're all siloed and just don't have the power to do anything. So somehow we've got to consolidate our power, but I don't really have the answer to that. You also mentioned in your article about the Russian uh, example, which provides an alternative to the uh, this uh, particular model of food production, where uh, you know you you have a very very different. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to favor uh, profit making entities. So I was wondering if you could maybe you know, ex- you know talk about uh, the uh, advantages of that model and why it doesn't seem to be breaking through into the imaginations of the public um, out here in North America and Europe? Well, well, in Russia, GMO is banned, for starters. They, they, um, uh, Putin is hoping or, or has the goal of becoming the leading organic supplier of organic food in the world, which they might, <laughs> might succeed in doing. Um, they had the advantage after... Um, after the fall of the Iron Curtain, that all this land was broken up, and people got these little plot, uh, garden garden plots, sort of that were like they would live in the city, and then they would have this little piece of land somewhere else where they could go in the summer and raise crops. So they so they'd have their little garden areas, and those garden areas all tend to be organic, or you know they're largely organic. So, so that's just a, kind of a tradition there. Our tradition, we have a lot more land that's arable, and that's you know we have better growing seasons than they do. But um, we, it's just not our tradition. We don't plant our front yard with vegetables. We plant it with grass, which is, which we put uh, you know pesticides on. So, I, partly it's a matter of mindset. We. I think we we could definitely do it. We could feed ourselves just with our own with our own lawns, but people just don't do it. It's just not the way it's done here. Mm. This Bear Monsanto merger has implications that seem to go beyond the uh, the the integrity of the food supply and the sustainability of uh, food and nutrition and so on. I mean, there's there's implications outside that sector, correct? 
Yeah, well, just the very history of Bayer and Monsanto and the people involved. Um, and I've read histories of IG Farben that it was about more than just cornering the chemical market. I mean, it was about more than money. It was about power. It was about dominating the world. And uh, Henry Kissinger said in the 1970s, control oil and you control governments, control food and you control the people. So so the whole green revolution that was started under Nixon, I guess, um, that's pretty much what it's all about, controlling food, which means controlling the people. So I guess the first step in breaking out of that is to be aware that that's going on, that there's something quite nefarious going on here, and then somehow we need to mobilize to oppose it. Ellen Brown, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, thanks again for uh, sharing your perspectives with us on the Global Research News Hour. Uh, thanks, Michael. Great talking to you. We've been speaking with attorney, author, and chairman of the Public Banking Institute, Ellen Brown. Her articles, including her recent piece on the Bear-Monsanto merger can be found at the website ellenbrown.com. To tell us more about this year's March Against Monsanto, we're joined by Nick Meyer, he is a writer for the March Against Monsanto website, and he joins us now from Madison Heights, Michigan. So thank you for joining us, Nick. Hi, Michael. Uh, great to be on. I was wondering if you could maybe give us a little bit of the background on the march, I mean, in terms of you know, some of the history of the popular, popular resistance to GMOs and Monsanto that led up to that first march seven years ago. Okay, so the first march... Um happened, uh, it was created by a mother in Utah named Tammy Canal, and she basically was looking at the food that she was feeding to her kids, and she was realizing that everything in the food that she was feeding them had toxic chemicals and um, lots of toxic preservatives and all sorts of things that are just not conducive to good health. And upon digging deeper, she found that in the United States, um, we have a company named Monsanto, which is one of the producers of Agent Orange back during the Vietnam War. And um, they have a long history in the pharmaceutical industry um, in producing toxic PCB chemicals, in producing Agent Orange, and they act have been genetically modifying our food supply in laboratories. And this is the type of process that is used to make over 90% of the corn in this country, um, over 90% of the soybeans in this country, over 90% of the canola oil that's on store shelves and food products. And she just, she was just fed up. And so she just started a grassroots movement um, from right there in her <clears throat> right there in her home state of Utah. And this was something that it was just like a powder keg. Uh, so many people, as soon as they found out what was happening to their food, um, they just they just felt naturally disposed to react to it very strongly. And so 
before you know it, before you know it, there were marches springing up uh, across the across the globe. So we've had marches in over 100 cities worldwide, and we've had as many as 500,000 to a million or more people come out for each march, um, especially especially in the the formative years of the march against Monsanto. So this was something where there was a lot of deception behind what was in the food. And once people woke up to this truth, they, they, they realized they were being taken for a ride. They realized that, that this was not right. And they just, they just had to react to it. They had to do everything they could to raise awareness. And that's how we got to where we are now. Um, there's an extra sense of urgency to this year's march and. There's a lot to talk about and a lot to raise awareness of, uh, perhaps as much as ever. One of the foci of this year's march is uh, Monsanto's investment in the CRISPR process, C-R-I-S-P-R. Could you give us some details about that technique and what the supposed advantages are and for whom? Yes, so uh, CRISPR is a type of gene editing process and... This is one of the most powerful technologies that has come out in the world of food and medicine uh, in as long as anybody can remember. Um, so basically, this technology, it's like genetic modification, like genetic engineering, but it's technically called gene editing. And so this allows a scientist to basically tinker with the genes of food or animals, different cells and things like that in a laboratory, but it's very, very accessible. So there are lots of independent scientists that are just basically sitting around in laboratories, scrambling with the genes of our food, scrambling with the genes of, of animals, and there's no long-term safety testing on this. Uh, so a lot of people are saying, you know, let's, let's calm down with this, uh, this technology. Let's, uh, you know, just like when GMOs first hit the market um, over 20 years ago, there's there's one side that is saying, you know, let's, you know, this these foods are just like other foods. We don't need to test them. Um, there's people on that side that are saying, you know, this technology can possibly cure diseases and things like that. But then there's another side which is being underrepresented. And this side is basically saying, let's use the precautionary principle, which is one of the bedrocks of science. And it seems to go out the window when it comes to genetic engineering and, and this technology because of how profitable it is. So, mm. so that's basically what we're saying. Let's, uh, let's, let's test this out. Let's, uh, let's play it safe with this. Let's have more regulations because this CRISPR technology, they already made genetically modified apples that don't turn brown. And there's been lots of petitions against them, but people people weren't able to stop it. So now it's going to be unlabeled apples that, that don't turn brown. And that's just one example of a technology that benefits the food companies, but doesn't really offer anything to the consumer except uh, more risk. Could you describe some of the more notable actions uh, taking place at this year's march? 
Well, usually one of the beautiful things about March Against Monsanto is that it's very grassroots, so you'll see lots of different signs on lots of different topics, um, lots of different speakers. It's uh, basically, it's about as grassroots as it, as it comes, so every march has a unique uh, style to it. Uh, for example, there's going to be one in Las Vegas that is called the March for Organics, and it's kind of an offshoot of the March Against Monsanto. And they're basically going to talk about why organic agriculture should be the future. And um, and then there's going to be other ones where people might be more vocal against uh, the Bayer-Monsanto merger. Um, I would anticipate that being big in Germany because uh, people in Germany are not fond of Monsanto and, and a lot of them are not fond of Bayer either. Um, so... So it's, it, it takes on the personality of the city that it's in and the country that it's in. On that note, Nick, I, I want to thank you very much for making time for this interview and uh, all the best. Thanks so much, Michael. I appreciate it, and I hope to see everybody out at the march. Okay. So we've been joined by Nick Meyer. He is one of the writers published at the site March Against Monsanto. You can read his posts and get more info about uh, the 2018 March and uh, following campaigns by visiting the site march-against-monsanto.com. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio stations, CKUW 95.9 FM, and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. Some questions have arisen in the public sphere as to whether the concerns about glyphosate pesticides and GMO agriculture have been overblown. I wanted to throw some of these points at an authoritative voice on the subject. Dr. Stephen France is Principal of Global Environmental Options, or GEO. He is a pathobiologist, consultant, and author who has researched glyphosate and GMOs extensively through his work with pesticides and integrated pest management. He joined us from Woodland Hills, California. Monsanto's vice president of global strategy points to 800 studies over 40 years, only a small percentage of which were funded by Monsanto, that certify that glyphosate was safe and non-carcinogenic. He cited a November 2017 study in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute, which followed 50,000 farm workers and their spouses from 1993 to 2013, which confirmed no firm link between glyphosate use and cancer. I just have to ask, is it responsible then to question the safety of glyphosate? We know, um, well, first off, to accept anything out of Monsanto's mouth is unacceptable. Um, but uh, the industry-sponsored studies are, of course, all tilted. So many of the studies that, that they quote are not peer-reviewed, not published. Um, and we know of many studies including studies from a number of prominent universities where Monsanto basically paid them off. We have, I mean, there, there are documents, um, things called the Monsanto Secret Papers uh, that Michael Baum from Baum, Headland and Company um, uh, attorneys here in L.A. have published that shows the collusion between Monsanto and various 
U.S. government agencies and some universities. Are you familiar with the November 2017 study in the journal of the National Cancer Institute, which was described as being very you know, comprehensive as it studied? Yeah, I'm familiar with the study, and yeah. the study had lots of flaws. Okay. I can't comment directly on those flaws, but it's been published. A lot of the problems come down to how they follow the studies, how long the studies go for following individuals, how they do the analysis for glyphosate because it is a very difficult procedure and I would say over half the people do it wrong. I'm not I'm not I'm not the biochemist to ask that question to, but um, it's been well pointed out by Anthony Samsell and Stephanie Senev. Um, well, another uh, industry claim from Monsanto, and they're, they're talking about some of the, the ecological aspects here. They claim the use of glyphosate-based herbicides contributes to the reduction of atmospheric carbon and soil erosion by reducing the need for tillage, which undermines carbon sequestration and keeps more organic matter on top of the soil. Um, what do you think of those sorts of claims? Um, Smokescreen. Uh, it's industry smokescreen. Actually, glyphosate contributes very heavily to climate change um, because, I mean, glyphosate, you know, you have, to, you have to remember the soil microbiome. And the soil microbiome is, is you know, all that, all that biomass that, if you will, that are, or the uh, microbia of the soil that sequester carbon. And glyphosate disturbs the disturbs the species balance of those microbes that are in the soil and and kills those soil microbes so they are not sequestering carbon and the their their idea about not having to till there are lots of no till farming methods that i mean it's a good idea to not to no till but there are ways to do no till that do not require the use of chemicals and, and that is the way to go. I mean, it's, these methods have all been worked out, oh, some number of years ago. That's just a misleading argument. Could I throw one more talking point at you? Um, this is one relates to the, uh, the idea of solving the global malnutrition crisis at GMOs, um, talking about, in, in particular, golden rice. I'm sure you've heard of it, uh, this idea that you've developed a new strain that uh, – would uh, cure widespread vitamin A deficiency, and yet the Australian and New Zealand food safety regulator FSANZ found the consumption of golden rice to be, quote, as safe for human consumption as food derived from conventional rice cultivars, unquote. So I, I guess I, I just want to ask, I mean, what you would say to that particular kind of talking point. Okay, a couple points. Um one, there are other sources of vitamin A that don't require genetic modification that are available and could be promoted. Um, anytime you're, you're modifying, as I mentioned earlier before you were recording, I think, um, you're modifying genes. Now, you have to remember, those genes, whatever's been modified and whatever markers or whatever accelerators are mixed in with that are now turned loose into the environment. They affect other things, things that eat them. The promoters, what they call the promoters of, of when they, when they, uh, when they uh, modify uh, genes, those promoters are now viable in other organisms. It's not like it all ends there. It is now part of a DNA. It, is now, it now goes on forever. It's like, it's like this genie that you can't, you've released, you can't get back in the bottle. 
This is insanity. There is no precautionary principle. They have not been studied for long terms. I don't care what the Australians say um, about this. There are other ways of doing it that don't require harming the environment in any way. Thank you very much, and I don't know if there's anything else you, you wanted to add to help people who may still have uh, some clouds in their uh, understanding of these issues. In 2009, the American Academy of Environmental Medicine recommended that physicians, their physicians, all members of the academy, tell their patients to avoid genetically modified foods and also ask those physicians to document any possible role those foods had in disease processes of their patients. So that was a real concern, continues to be a real concern. Um, and of course, all those GM foods come complete with the pesticides. And then in 2016, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended that people limit their children's exposure to pesticides by minimizing foods in which the chemicals were used to produce those foods. So, um, I think it was on ABC News, Diane Sawyer was interviewing their chief um, medical officer uh, about how kids could, how parents could reduce the pesticide exposure of their kids. And he said, eat organic. And indeed, eating organic could reduce about 33% of the world's greenhouse gases. I mean, in other words, if we switch to organic production, that alone would reduce greenhouse gases by anywhere from like 25 to 33%. That's big, and that includes livestock production, rice production, emissions from agricultural machinery, fossil fuels, deforestation, all this, all this kind of stuff that contributes. So there's a vast important need to redo the way we conduct food production. And this has been shown, I mean, the, the, we do not need genetically modified foods to meet the world's food crisis, there was, well, the world's food needs. Um, in fact, the World Health Organization, FAO, have both published documents that say we've got to get off the pesticides, we've got to go towards organic production, if we expect to have a long-term, sustainable food production system, because we're killing the way you can't kill the soil. I mean, think of it as a very simple phrase, you know, healthy, healthy soil means healthy plants means healthy people. And when you're killing the soil, what you're doing with the pesticides, glyphosate right there among them, um, and then because glyphosate, I mean, if you had longer interview time, I mean, glyphosate, talk about taking, glyphosate takes minerals, important minerals, out of, out of the plant uptake. In other words, because glyphosate's been used, certain minerals are not available to go into the plant, so therefore the nutritional density of those plants is less than otherwise. So now the plants are less useful to people for meeting nutritional needs. So it goes on and on. Mm. All of these are connected, and the industrial agricultural system has to be changed. Dr. Franz, I think we'll leave it there, but I really appreciate um, adding your voice to this debate. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. We've been speaking to pathobiologist, consultant, and author, and principal of Global Environmental Options, Dr. Stephen Franz. He joined us from Woodland Hills, California. 
final word on the GMO controversy, the Global Research News Hour is proud to present an interview recorded one year ago with one of the world's most outspoken and authoritative voices of opposition to genetic engineering, Vandana Shiva. Dr. Vandana Shiva is an Indian scholar, environmental activist, and anti-globalization author. She trained as a physicist at the University of Punjab and earned her PhD from the University of Western Ontario. She founded the Research Foundation of Science, Technology, and Ecology in 1982, which led to the creation of Navdanya in 1991, a national movement for the protection of biological resources, especially native seeds. Shiva's work often celebrates the wisdom of traditional knowledge, such as Vedic medicine and farming practices, and she has criticized the practice of corporate seed patenting. Dr. Shiva spoke to the Global Research News Hour following a public talk at the University of Winnipeg at which she brought up issues of terra nullis, plant intelligence, and colonialism. Here's a clip from that talk. Industrial farming based on chemicals, chemical fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, all of which began in the war. Um, I, I have started to call the three giants that grew out of the war, made the nerve gases and the poison gases in the Second World War, I have started to call them the poison cartel because they function like a cartel and all they can make is poison. All they can produce is poison. And the only skill they have is to kill. To kill our monarch butterfly and our bees, to kill the earthworms and the mycorrhizal fungi, to kill knowledges and sciences and cultures, and to kill democracy and freedom. I'm in the heart of big debate on GMO mustard in India right now. They're trying to introduce it. I spent a long evening briefing our environmental minister, who is the highest authority to give approvals. And he had said, I know, I'll never approve it. He made it very clear he would not sign the approval order. On the 18th, he was suddenly dead. And I know so many scientists been attacked. Uh, Dr. Shiva, I'm very uh, interested in um, a lot of what you had to say at your recent talk and in your writings about this uh, interface between the, the corporate uh, for-profit model and how it intersects with this need to provide for our basic food uh, needs and basic energy needs. So I guess just talking, bringing in the uh, something that's fairly timely, this merger between Monsanto, who you've been very outspoken against, and Bayer. Could you maybe quantify exactly how you see that merger make going, making the situation worse, going from the frying pan to the fire? What, what in particular do you think that uh, those of us, is the concern for farmers and, and for food security generally? First thing that people should remember is Monsanto and Bayer were one during the war. They were called Mobi. They worked together to sell poisons on both sides of the war. Um, it's only after the IG Farben trial at Nuremberg that then the separation took place. So in a way, the Bayer-Monsanto merger of the contemporary times is just a coming together in an open way of a hidden marriage that always was there. Second, even if you look at cross-licensing arrangements, they've been working together. When the BT Cotton of Monsanto failed in India 
in 2015-2016 in the states of Punjab, 80% of the cotton was hit by white fly. Who sold the pesticides? Why? So they work as one, as a poison cartel. Right now, Bayer is trying to push a GMO mustard. At the same time, Monsanto is trying to dismantle our patent laws, which say we cannot allow patents on seeds, plants, animals, because these are not human inventions. They have their own self-organizing capacity to organize life, regulate life, reproduce life, multiply seeds. Um, what will this new open merger mean? The first is I think the numbers like 66 billion are just games for the public. I've done an analysis, it'll be out in my new book on the resurgence of the real. The true owners of all of these corporations, down to the Coca-Colas and the Pepsis, all of them are the new investment giants, which are the cartel of the rich men, who have now designed ways of using their money to basically control the future of humanity. And for them, there is more future in collecting rents from seed, which they never invented, from selling more poisons, including corrupting governments, including denying the fact that even the WHO said glyphosate is a carcinogen. So they're putting their money to tell lies, to defend killing and destroy democracy. So in effect, actually, the merger is more power in the hands of criminal corporations to not just push their agenda, but corrupt governments, subvert democracy. We are witnessing it right now in India with the GM mustard case. Um, destroy science. And in the name of science, they say science requires GMOs, but they are knocking out any scientist who does the real research on A, the fact that GMOs don't produce more, B, that they haven't controlled pests or weeds, they've created super pests and super weeds, C, that there are better ways through biodiversity, through agroecology, to actually produce enough food for people and have enough for other species, which is what the food system is about. So I see the merger of Bayer and Monsanto as, in a way, the, the peak of a contest between a century of ecocide and genocide with no stopping versus earth democracy, where all species have their rights recognized and they act because most of the subversion of the Monsanto agenda hasn't taken place because people marched into the fields of Roundup Ready Soya, but the Palmer Amaranth rose and defeated the project. And that's why I insist 300 million species. And if you assume that even half of humanity will keep thinking and defending their freedom, which would mean 3.5 billion people, that's a lot of intelligence against the criminality of a cartel of Bayer, Monsanto, Dow, DuPont, Syngenta, Chem China, all working together with a failed agenda of pushing GMOs. I find that there's a, a sort of a parallel development, perhaps. You're talking about the food system, but there's also the energy, the energy economy. And uh, I noticed that there's a lot of talk about transition and, you know, about time, transition away from fossil fuel. But I've noticed that a lot of, uh, of investment, uh, corruption, subversion, perhaps, uh, is taking place in the guise of uh, major investors like the Rockefellers 
and uh, you know Warren Buffett and all of these major players, they are trying to invest. Uh, Bill Gates, Mission Innovation, they're all trying to invest, get in on this renewable economy, but they're not seeing the renewable economy as, uh, you know, uh, well, it, it seems as if they're, they're larger objective is finding a new frontier for capitalist expansion. And so it's, you know, I look at those sorts of developments when you see major uh, donations to major environmental NGOs and so on. I, I'm wondering if we aren't similarly seeing if this is something that uh, we need to be on guard against uh, to prevent, uh, you know, uh, uh, this kind of poison pill, another kind of poisonous cartel, uh, you know, from moving in so, so that the renewable economy is in fact something that's aligned with natural systems and natural intelligence and, and not simply just another uh, mechanism for for-profit growth and capitalist expansion. Could you, could you address those concerns? The first thing is food is energy. It gives us energy when we eat nourishing food. Sadly, food itself has become the source of major components of a non-sustainable energy model. 90% of the corn and soya grown in the world just now is going for biofuel. So we already have food diverted into a non-sustainable energy model. When it comes to renewable energy, which really began as small initiatives trying to build all energy alternatives to fossil fuel, it was so clear in uh, the Paris meetings that uh, this would be the next platform for the Gates of the world and the Buffets of the world. And do they make windmills? No, they don't. He just keeps his hands in his pockets and eats hamburgers. Uh, do they make solar panels? No. What do they run for? What is their innovation? Grabbing the patents. So they are looking for a future where there will be a lot of renewable energy in the world, but they will collect rents from the expansion of renewable energy, like they seek to collect rents from seed, which is the only agenda for GMOs and patents of seed. What we are seeing is the emergence of a new economy that's a rental economy, based on intellectual property. And people who don't work making the huge money and becoming the 1%, and the people who work and slog and are creative and are innovative, punished, just because they are hardworking human beings. It's that not just, I don't call it inequality, because it is worse than inequality. It is a lie, it's a brutalization, it's a dehumanization. It's a dehumanization of those who are robbed of their share of this earth and the well-being of the earth. But it's a brutalization of those few who think, being lords and masters of the universe at this critical time where the very survival of our species is at stake, that their profits come first not humanity, not the planet. You brought up the term anthropocentrism early in your talk, and that's a, a serious uh, concern in, in so far as uh, it, it's something that we just sort of don't really pay attention to think about. It's just part of like the water that we swim in. And I, I'm finding that uh, a lot of those technologies has that sort of anthropocentric uh, veneer to it. Could you address the technologies, uh, another uh, vista, the uh, the digital technologies. And we mentioned spyware. Edward Snowden talks about surveillance. I'm wondering 
if these technologies are irredeemably anthropocentric or can we find some aspect to them where we can continue to um, utilize them? Uh, you know, for me, technologies are not some magical phenomena that gets sent from the skies to a few privileged men, which is how Bacon used to think of the new technologies and the new science and the new Atlantis and superheroes, etc. That's not the way the world works. The world, way the world works is people are creative and innovative and they evolve tools. The problem with the tools that have come from the commons, Microsoft is not the inventor of software. It's the patenter of software. Monsanto is not the inventor of seed and definitely even not of recombinant DNA. It's the patenter and it's the buyer of others who might have had the patent before them. So it's really a race for ownership through any means whatsoever. And the reason I worry about the digital technologies is not that humans have worked out ways to deal with digital technologies, but that those who control digital technologies want to use it as an instrument of control. For example, all of India's economy was shut down on 8th of November 2016 for a digital economy. Our big cash notes were banned. All the savings of millions and billions of people were wiped out. This privileging of digital basically means that the global financial system where money runs to the US, to Wall Street, to these investment funds, that those people get your 6% rental with every transaction and the hardworking person through exchange loses out, has to pay more. The second reason why the digital uh, economy is being used as a new digital dictatorship, and I've written about this, is the new merger between digital technologies and information technologies on the one hand and agriculture and, and biotechnologies on the other, but also digital technologies and finance. Right now, finance economy has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with wealth. It has everything to do speculation via rapid algorithms. And I think it is narrowing our possibilities by not allowing the wide intelligences which are not one-dimensional, which are not linear, which play out in all kinds of combinations of our hearts and heads and hands working as one to guide us out of crisis, at this moment of crisis, to put your fate of humanity in combinations of zeros and ones and machines owned and patented and algorithms owned and patented, a handful of men who have zero real experience of what life is about is a very, very dangerous step. And you also mentioned the term terra nullis, the second coming of Christopher Columbus and that whole uh, mentality that, that seems to infect so much of our culture, and including the sciences. I mean, you come from a scientific <laughs> background. and. Uh, yeah. So and, and, and the way that we approach things, and you had to relearn from uh, meeting with uh, you know, the women and, and, and peasant folk, uh, a different yeah. understanding yeah. Yeah, yeah. of this. So could you maybe help us, those of us who wish to relieve ourselves, and I know you're, relieve ourselves of this, uh, this infection, yes. how, how, what we could do to, to, to 
not to unknowingly or instinctively duplicate and replicate these same patterns. There are no empty lands. There are no empty minds. And the very idea that knowledge starts when someone gets the idea of conquest or extermination is the illusion born of colonialism, is the illusion born of the fossil fuel age, is the illusion born from the concentration camps of Hitler. And those are the kind of sciences that are dominating today, especially in agriculture. I think it is really time for us to recognize that we've done agriculture for 10,000 years. And there's 10,000 years of knowledges, not one, but many. It takes a different kind of ability to be able to live on fish in the Arctic, in Greenland, and a totally different kind of ability to harvest your food from the Amazon rainforest. Each of these interactions generates its own knowledge. So the idea of one agriculture, one science that Bill Gates is trying to propose is absolutely against the diversity and vitality of the world. The second thing we need to know and remember now is something indigenous people never separated themselves from other species, never had an anthropocentric hierarchy and realized that every plant, every microbe, every animal was an intelligent and sentient being. Science is finally waking up to this. The science not controlled by the poison cartel. And I think we need a new alliance of the ability to look through new eyes like microscopes um, and the old eyes of wisdom and join those in a resurgence of the real, which is what my new book is about. Ecological farming, eating well, nourishing your body, nourishing the earth is doing the planetary heart bypass. The arteries are clogged with greed. And all we need to say is, we have better ways, and we can do it. Thank you. That was an interview with Dr. Vandana Shiva, recorded during her visit to Winnipeg in May of 2017. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.